We greet you this evening here at Twin City Bible Church. Delighted to look out and see you here for our midweek Wednesday evening adult Bible study. We're meeting here. I believe music ministry, they will be rehearsing and practicing downstairs. You have students meeting, children meeting, much ministry taking place tonight. So why don't we go to the Lord and ask for his help as we come to study his word, especially before we dive into this next chapter in the book of Revelation. Father in heaven, we come to you, our hearts full as we consider who you are and who you are towards us in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great Savior he is. What a kind Savior he is. We think of how he cares for us and provides for us, how this moment he intercedes for us, that he is the righteous one, that as we consider and reflect the many ways and the many times we've sinned and we've failed, the promise that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that's how we want to approach this passage tonight. Clean us, O Lord. Help us to see and to behold the glory of what's taking place now as we reach the climax in this great book, Revelation. Help us, Lord, not to get lost in the details, but to understand the details and then to behold what really is to come, how we long for this, Lord. Even as we think and consider these things, our hearts cry out, come, come, Lord Jesus. So meet with us now, be with us in all the ministry that takes place here tonight. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. As we said in our prayer, we are nearing the end here in Revelation, although we have still some wonderful things ahead of us in this study. We come tonight to Revelation chapter 19, as has normally been at least my practice recently in our study in Revelation. We've tackled a whole chapter at a time, but we'll let you know up front we're going to slice chapter 19 in half. We'll walk through about half of it tonight. We'll save the rest of it for next Wednesday night, Lord willing. If you're taking notes and you want to give a title to our study tonight, you could write this, The Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus. And with that, I think I've already tipped my hand with the intro tonight. Some of you might enjoy the show Jeopardy. Although, what are we to do now that Alex Trebek is no longer with us? He was such a fixture for that show. But setting that aside and thinking of Jeopardy and thinking of the way that they pose questions, trivia questions, we'll pose you this question tonight. Question. What musical piece over three hours in length was written in roughly three weeks in the summer of 1741? Think about it. Your mind is wrestling. I think at least one person here probably knows. Not to single anybody out, but yeah, Emily Harding, you probably got it. Maybe a few others. The answer stated in the form of a question. If you were sitting there thinking, what is Handel's Messiah? You would have answered correctly. Hopefully, you answered correctly, and we could then ask, how much did you wager? But of course, we're not playing Jeopardy here tonight. Handel's Messiah, one of the greatest musical pieces ever produced. Again, amazing, three hours in length, and you think of the complexity, all the different pieces in that wonderful composition, written in only about three weeks in one summer, incredible. The composer, of course, Handel, he, as he wrote it and composed it, first imagined that it would be more for an Easter celebration as it recounts all the life, the prophecy, the incarnation, everything related to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, in fact, we've probably had it fresh in our minds and on our ears. Later, it would really be moved more to the Christmas season. 
And you think of Handel's Messiah, maybe you've had the opportunity to be there present as it's been performed with a full choir and a full orchestra. Or maybe you just have it somewhere on a CD, but even still listening to it. The many pieces that are so recognizable. You think of maybe the opening overture, so gripping, almost haunting, pulling the listener in. And yet later as it shifts in its sound, those of you that might listen to Renewing Your Mind, produced by Ligonier, you're familiar with that tune in the opening overture. I think later on a more lighter note, the wonderful tune for Unto Us a Child is Born. And how as the peace develops and the music swells, it builds in pronouncement where the choir proclaims his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Maybe you, when you think of Handel's Messiah, your mind goes to a different piece. Uh, the strings Rhythmic as the choir heralds the news, surely he hath borne our griefs. And yet surely with the tune that stands out, you may not even know it's from Handel's Messiah, but certainly you know this most memorable, most recognizable tune, the title of our study tonight, the Hallelujah Chorus how it begins and it follows this established pattern uh, and, and it proclaims with the orchestra, with the choir. In fact, such an effect usually when it's played or uh, I don't want to say produced, when it's conducted before people, there's the pattern where, what, you typically get up out of your seat and you stand. Maybe even joining in, proclaiming hallelujah, Hallelujah. In that piece, again, as you think of it and can even hear it tonight, handle capturing something of the wonder, something of the grandeur, almost heavenly in nature, this hallelujah chorus. Whether he realized it or not, he was on to something. Because as we come to our study tonight in Revelation the scene will shift back up into heaven. And in heaven, as these events are about to unfold, a great, the greatest hallelujah chorus breaks out. The scene in heaven is a song in heaven. And the late Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, captures it so simply but so well. Thus far in Revelation, especially the prior two chapters, now coming to chapter 19, he says the somber shifts into song. We're going to see that tonight. Because yes, for many weeks now, we've been in the midst of the somber, even the sober. How in this period in Revelation, you have the scene in chapter 4 and 5 of the throne and who is it that is worthy to open up the scroll? Only the Lamb of God who comes and steps forward and how all the way back then, how we began to see in Revelation, God beginning to unleash his judgment upon the earth. Again, friends, a very real thing that will take place one day in the future. When that is, we don't know. God does. But written, inscripturated, settled as stone, that there will be this unique seven-year period known as the tribulation. That in a miraculous way, the church will be removed. In this seven-year period, God will begin to pour out his judgment First, by means of uh, seven seals, each judgment incredible and powerful in display. Then after the seven seal judgments, the what? The seven trumpet judgments. Even more intense, then even becoming more global in its impact. 
You think of those who will be alive on earth at the time in an amazing way. Finally, ethnic Israel, who for so long as a corporate body has rejected the promised Messiah, then in this period, she will finally turn. She will look on him whom she pierced and be saved. And yet, many more Perhaps the vast majority who will go about life on this earth, they will double down in their hostility to the one true God. And even as these judgments are unleashed, the seals, the trumpets, then ramping up to the bowl judgments, seven total, signaling perfection. That those alive on the earth who will rebel against God and double down in rebellion against God, in some way they will acknowledge that this is all from the one true God. But they want none of him. They want to instead serve the false Christ that Satan will rise up at this time. You remember that study? The counterfeit Christ? Remember, Satan's God's ape, as the Puritans put it. He's not new and original. He's a cheap imitator. He produces his knockoff, a cheap imitation. He puts forth his Christ. He brings forth his false prophet. And yet, tragic, most will be deceived. Most will willfully even turn to worship the false Christ, the beast turning against the one true God. Now, as God pours forth his judgment, does he still give them opportunity to repent? Do you think, does he still send forth people with the gospel that they they might hear and still turn to be saved? Why, yes, of course. Think if ethnic Israel, the sum total at least represented by 144,000, They all together proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And yet they're rejected. God sends forth two witnesses. Two witnesses who begin to do some incredible miraculous things. And yet do you remember what happens to them? They're killed. Other believers going about life on this earth. When it's found out that they worship the one true God. Oh they're marked out. They're ostracized many of them even ultimately losing their life in martyrdom. Prompting then this scene in heaven where you have these martyrs crying out to God, when will you rise up and act, O Lord? Oh, and he's beginning to act. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, wrath and judgment unleashed on this earth ultimately targeting, as we saw in the last two chapters, 17 and 18, ground zero of godlessness. Babylon. Babylon, this empire rebuilt with its chief capital city of sin. God will mark it out. God will unleash his judgment such that we come to the end of chapter 18 the end of this seven-year period, and Babylon will finally be destroyed. In fact, as it's destroyed and as the smoke is rising up, still active in its destruction, again, somber, that's where Vernon McGee then says it shifts. That's the scene on earth. But tonight we look up to heaven. And the scene in heaven, why yes, it breaks out in song. Because of what's just happened. And because of what is soon, long at last about to take place. So tonight, really this study in chapter 19, we're going to walk through verses 1 through 10. Again, we're cutting it right on the edge of what's about to happen. Lord willing, you need to be here next week. We've been waiting for this moment in this study. 
But first, we need to look to heaven. We'll break our study down tonight really into two parts. We'll label the first in verses 1 through 5, praise in retrospect. Praise in retrospect, meaning praise looking back. What is it that has just happened? That being the ground for praise. Chapter 19. You know, why don't we read the whole passage? Helps us. We'll read through verse 1 through 10. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous, for He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Praise in retrospect, verses 1 through 5. Again, the song breaks out in heaven. John writing to us at the beginning of verse 1, that familiar phrase, after these things, cluing us in, the scene shifts, the chronology moves forward. Again, the these things, the fact that Babylon, the empire, Babylon, the city, Babylon, the summary of all that is anti-God and anti-Christ. The fact that it is now in ruins. John begins to hear, he says something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. What is it that he hears? He begins to hear praise break out. He begins to hear, as we said, this hallelujah chorus. Be it the angelic figures, be it all those resident in heaven, louder and louder it builds and builds, culminating in verse 1, John hears hallelujah. Now, that's a word that I imagine you're here tonight, you're familiar with. 
And yet sometimes we can be so familiar with terms, we pass over them and we actually miss what it actually means. If we were to read through the entirety of the New Testament, we would maybe be shocked to learn this is the first time this word shows up in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, it's only used four times all right here in this passage. That's interesting. And yet, we don't just have the New Testament. We have the Old Testament. And how much of Revelation is built on Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament imagery and thinking of the Old Testament, thinking even specifically of the Psalms. That's where we begin to remember what this word is and what this word means. Readers of the Old Testament would be so familiar with it. Hallelujah, really uh, transliterated from the Hebrew, uh, used here then in the Greek, put nicely in a way that we grasp it here in English. From the original, it's simply two words. Hallel, meaning praise, and Yah, meaning Yahweh, God. Putting them together in the original Hebrew, throughout the Psalter, it's really issuing a command. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. You then think of the Psalter, think specifically of Psalms 113 through 118 and heavy concentration, such that they're often called the Hallel Psalms. In fact, those group of Psalms that would be sung as they would remember the Passover. Think of Jesus with his disciples about to observe the Passover just before his crucifixion. All in the course of that, they would be singing together Psalms 113 through 118. Singing and reflecting on, praising Yahweh. It's there in the Psalter. It's even later. You come to the end of the Psalter, Psalm 145, all about the glory of God and his great character. And from that point on, Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, the Psalter erupts in hallelujahs. So with that praise and the command to praise the one true God, here now it appears in the New Testament at the end of the story in Revelation, there in heaven, John hearing this heavenly chorus proclaiming, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And yet, Do you remember what we studied these last two chapters? What it is that has just happened back on earth? Judgment? Wrath? God's enemies punished? And heaven erupts in praise? You could ask, does that make you feel uncomfortable? Is there a category in your theology for understanding God's glory displayed not just in salvation, but also in his judgment? Well, there is in this scene in heaven, much like Psalm 104 verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. You know, often when God acts in salvation, it also involves his judgment being unleashed. And even here, though salvation in a physical sense is soon to be put on display with the rest of chapter 19, yet just before, even here with the victory God has over his enemies. Even though, yes, it involves his judgment and his just wrath unleashed over his enemies, those in heaven, they see what he does and it 
prompts praise. That's what we mean when we say praise in retrospect. They're contemplating Babylon being destroyed. God's victory over his enemies. And that fills the lungs of those in heaven to sing praise. Hallelujah, they proclaim. And what is it that they're proclaiming? Verse 1 tells us, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Oh, it's clear. Salvation, deliverance is only found with him. And all that he's done, he alone has glory. And in all these judgments, yes, his power displayed. And as they consider such things, they then break out with this hallelujah chorus. But verse 2 will push us a bit further. It will get more specific. You see the first word, because. Cluing us in, there's some thought here. The praise has its specific reason. What's the specific reason? His judgments are true and righteous. For he's judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her Immorality. Again, they from the vantage point of heaven, you think even they now glorified or these angelic figures not tainted by sin, them being able to see things clearly, see who God is, see the sinfulness of sin, see the wickedness of rebellion against God, they then see God for you to act in judgment, for you to finally unleash and punish these evildoers. They proclaim it is true and it is right and righteous. And how is it that they're able to say this? Again, to think God punishing a sinner? And in ultimate sense, we will see, see soon in an eternal place known as hell. But even before that, God acting in a miraculous display, wiping out and punishing these Enemies in Babylon? Oh, it's true and it's righteous because a good God must do what? He must punish evil. He has to punish sin. And praise God that as this God sits up in heaven, yes, full of patience, full of mercy, full of grace, Yet when he acts in judgment, his judgment is always true. Meaning accurate, appropriate, knowing full well the offense committed. And this God from his character, he's righteous, righteous in all his ways, righteous in all his acts, even in his judgment, meaning he's not up there wicked, he's not up there malevolent, he doesn't act sadistically, he's not the mean dictator punishing poor weak people. No, this is a God who is given every opportunity, abounding opportunities for people to turn to him in saving faith. And with rejection after rejection after rejection, this God who holds forth his hands, when will you turn to me, oh, you unbelieving people? But now for him to act. Again, this, this isn't arbitrary. This isn't unfair. This is now them finally getting what they've deserved all along. A righteous God acting in this way. Because again, what we just walked through, this here is the epitome of rebellion against God. 
takes you back to the very beginning, right? You think of the first man and woman rebelling against God and what it is that they deserved, and yet God preserving them, God showing grace to them, God clothing them in their nakedness. You think not long after that, you come to Genesis 6, where evil abounded to such an extent, iniquity was so great that as sin abounded on the earth, God brought waters of judgment to abound on the earth. Almost matching that, if not excelling that, here in the great tribulation. Again, with Satan behind it all, the false Christ, the false prophet, universal blasphemy, universal worship of the beast. Finally, now in God's timing, it's right for him to act in this way. And heaven responds with great praise. Again, doubles down on who this corporate entity is. He's judged, it says, the great harlot. I mean, that's that's who Babylon is. And what did she do? She was corrupting the earth with her immorality. using the power, using the influence to bring many people into sin and iniquity. Her great sin is met with God's great punishment. And heaven responds, praising God for what he's done. It says he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her, more literally of his slaves Again, you think of the people at that time. I mean, you you could take stories you've heard from church history of believers who've been martyred, believers who were burned at the stake, and uh, some even, uh, not wood that was dry, but wood that was green and fresh and took a long time to get heated up to finally burn and kill believers. I mean, the most evil things committed against people bringing the good news of the gospel. That's what's happened. God then acts. Heaven then praises. But then we hear a second time, verse 3. A second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. It's as if it's the encore. It's as if the singing continues. As it continues, the smoke is still fresh. Uh, The fire hasn't totally burned out. It builds and it fills the air. The plume keeps going up. The city's destruction from this here, it is final. It is settled. It's not ever going to happen again. I mean, this is reminiscent of the scene of Sodom and Gomorrah, the great iniquity of those towns. Even reading recently, again, the account, Abraham saying, God, if there's but ten righteous people, will you not spare the town? And instead, oh, there's not even ten righteous. God unleashes hell on those two towns And how Abraham, it says in Genesis 19, he gets up early in the morning. He went to the place where he stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Such is true also with Babylon. And heaven praises. Now we get clued into more of the characters singing in heaven. Verse 4 reminds us of some of these figures that we've seen earlier in the study in Revelation. Again, we can make as best of an attempt at identifying who they are or what they are. We're reminded of the 24 elders. They appeared earlier in Revelation, all the way back in chapter 4, I believe. Is it just representative of the church? Uh, possibly. 
I think maybe it's two groupings, 12 and 12, like the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers perhaps grouped together, them being all represented, they then praising the Lord. And not only that, the four living creatures, some angelic figures, their whole ministry, their whole existence tied and related to the very throne of God seen in chapter 4. That they, they're these majestic angels. They, with the 24 elders, what do they do? Again, by the way, uh, without sin, fully glorified, and yet they fall down and worship God who sits on the throne. And they say, Amen. Hallelujah. They say, amen, yes, may it be. May it be, God. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Again, no hesitation, no doubting. They join in, they concur, they agree. Yes, God, this is right and this is good. John then hears a voice in the midst of all this hallelujah chorus Verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, whose voice might this be? You know, if we're going to be honest, it's hard to determine. Some think perhaps it's God himself speaking, maybe God the Father. Possible. It would be a little weird and, and unique to then say, give praise to our God. Wouldn't we expect to hear him say, and then even later, you who fear him, that if it was God, it would said, you who fear me? It seems unlikely. Some wonder, could it be the Lamb, Jesus, the second person in the Godhead? Could be, but again, appears maybe unlikely, especially because earlier in Revelation, when the Lamb speaks, Several times in chapter 3, he will speak of my God. Some then wonder, perhaps again, it's another angel. In fact, you can read uh, maybe even that it's coming from the throne, John hearing these things from the direction, from the vicinity around it. Someone, whomever it might be, I think maybe an angel, speaking with authority, an authority though delegated from God himself, gives the command, oh, join in, give praise to our God. All you his slaves, you who fear him, the small and the great, And friend, isn't this what it all ultimately is going to lead to? The corporate gathered body around this throne, beholding him who sits on the throne, beholding the lamb and all of his glory, giving praise, of course being filled with fear, but this isn't a fear of terror. This is a fear of thankfulness. This is a fear of of love and faith mixed with unfeigned fear, as Calvin would say. All who are his slaves, all who are all gathered there, it says, small and the great, extending to all believers in heaven. You know, in thinking on this today and studying and preparing to think, you and I will be part of this. If we're in Christ, I mean, what we're reading here is what's going to happen in the future. We will hear this. We will join in with this. And it says all the small and all the great. I love that it says all the small. Little me and little you. I mean, who are we ultimately? We heard this past Sunday, right? Cracked bots. Not much. Yet saved by the Lamb, the nothings from nowhere, yet called a child, numbered in with this group. 
That's what breaks out in heaven. Praise in retrospect. Looking back to what had just happened. Pause with me for one moment. Put your finger there in Revelation. Turn over to Exodus 15. Really quickly, it helps to see this, broadly speaking. Because if this sounds odd to you tonight, this great praise in light of judgment that has just happened, if you're a student of the Bible, this isn't anything new. In fact, the great display of God's salvation in the Old Testament, a salvation which also involves Him acting in judgment, that just on the heels of it, in retrospect, they break out singing praise to God. That's what happens in Exodus 15. That as God displayed with his mighty hand, his power in saving the Israelites and judging Pharaoh and all who followed him. That there may not be smoke arising, but all the water is going ever up onto the shore there. And as the water goes up onto the shore, you know what's washing up onto the shore? The bodies of all of these dead Egyptian soldiers who have pursued Israel, trying to seek them out, yet God acting in the Exodus to save Israel. And the response to that, Moses leads the children of Israel to sing this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Praising God for who he is, for what he has done, and then even looking ahead to what he will do. We go back to Revelation 19, simply remembering that God, when he acts in judgment, because he is a morally perfect, holy being, It is always just, it is always right, it is always righteous. That often the deliverance of the righteous involves judgment of the wicked. But we could pause here and reflect, as the commentator Thomas Schreiner puts it, the praise here is coming after they've been judged. Maybe a lesson you and I can learn until this takes place because often we begin to put ourselves into this. We're not as concerned for God's glory when it's marred. Maybe when we get upset and we respond in anger, it's not because God's been defamed. It's because in our, some way our ego's been defamed. But taking a step back for those who are unbelievers to recognize until God acts in judgment, you and I can pray and plead and hold before them the very good news they desperately need. But then when he acts, then we'll fully know and see and behold his glory put on display. That's praise in retrospect. We move forward in the remaining verses, verses 6 through 10. If there's praise in retrospect, well, there's also praise in prospect. Looking ahead, praise anticipated, looking forward. Friend, what is it that's about to take place in Revelation Finally, long at last, the Messiah is going to return. The King will return. Christ will return, not in humiliation, but in glory and in power. And it's considering that, that it's just about to finally happen. 
that it's as if the hallelujah chorus builds with eager anticipation as they consider what's about to happen. What is it that's about to happen? Verse 5, as it says, give praise to our God, you his spawn servants. Verse 6 tells us that John heard heard something like, look at how he tries to capture this. Like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Three times, like, like, like. a great multitude. Think a great crowd. Apparently, according to the Guinness Book of World Record, the loudest crowd noise took place in Arrowhead Stadium. For those of you not in the know, Kansas City Chiefs, that football team, that the crowd noise reached 142.2 decibels. About the same intensity as the sound if you were standing on an aircraft carrier deck without ear protection. That's loud. The sound of a great waterfall, maybe you've had the experience of going and seeing Niagara Falls and all of its power and display. Like great thunder, think of the most intense thunderstorm you've been in where you see the flash and then immediately you feel the thunder. Not here, you feel the thunder. Bringing those together, that would be loud. Maybe in some way it would approach what people estimate to be the loudest sound explosion that has ever occurred all the way back in 1883, the explosion of Krakatoa. Do you remember hearing about this? Estimated to be 310 decibels, which if you were there present, I mean, I would imagine your eardrum would explode. So loud, they say, people in Australia over 2,000 miles away heard it because they thought someone was firing a rifle. We're using these things to try to build this imagery out of what it is that John is hearing in this vision. Bringing all of them together, the sound of all the sounds, the song of all the songs, Now maybe the whole host of heaven. You think of this numberless crowd of saved sinners. And beyond that, the many multitude of angelic beings. Certainly the greatest choir that has ever been assembled. All crying out, hallelujah. Verse 6 tells us, why for the Lord our God, the almighty Reigns. Reigns always in his universal kingdom. He sits on his throne. He rules over all, the psalmist tells us. But in a specific way, back on the domain that he created, he is about to sit on the throne. Not just any throne, by the way, the throne of of David that back on earth his kingdom will be set up and on that earth on the throne on that earth yes the Lord God omnipotent reigneth as they sing in Handel's Messiah Verse 7 continues, let us rejoice, let us be glad and give glory to him. Why? Why are they swelling in praise? Do you see it? The marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. 
finally, now, the lamb will have his wedding. The great consummation of Christ with his people. I mean, friends, you've been part of this church. Think this last year, there were quite a number of weddings in our little body. How sweet and wonderful each one was. The joy, the excitement, the thrill each time those doors opened and that bride in her gown came down the aisle, even not just last year, this last weekend. The thrill, the anticipation, the joy, the bride coming and entering in to then be married to her husband. You realize that all these weddings are but mere echoes of what's what's about to come here. The wedding of all weddings. Again, tied to Christ's kingdom being established on earth. That heaven's filled with great anticipation. She even thinks of this bride. It says it was given to her, this bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, luminous, pure. Makes you think of Ephesians chapter 5, right? Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's what she's going to be clothed with. It's been given to her, signaling God is the one who provided it. And yet this interesting phrase, this fine linen, what it is she's clothed with, it says it's the righteous acts of the saints. What does that mean? Put very simply, this bride, she's not been lazy and she's not been passive. She's helped make herself ready. A reminder that you and I, if we've been saved, we're part of this. That our Christian life is not just us as the Lone Ranger, but it has a corporate effect. That our pursuit of God, our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of fighting against sin and seeking to grow in the Christian life, as 2 Corinthians 7.1 would tell us, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. We think of 1 John 3.3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself even as he's pure. That as you and I seek to grow in the Christian life, corporately as a body, our church grows in Christ-likeness. And then in an ultimate way, all the gathered church universal will grow and grow and be sanctified, growing in Christ-likeness. And then ultimately, there with him will finally be glorified such that she once was closed with an alien righteousness, alien like Luther said, meaning not her own, not inherent, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of her. From who? From Christ. His righteousness that's been given, given that God would declare this would be righteous, but then in being declared righteous and in heaven seen as righteous, then growing in real righteousness such that the alien righteousness here in this scene, now it's as if it's an actual righteousness. Again, all because of what she's done? Well, she's had a role in it. The bride, the church corporately, but ultimately because the head of the church has been hard at work. Again, thinking of Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Oh, it was given to her. She clothed herself in this linen, the linen being the brilliant display of her righteous acts. Again, just think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we would walk in them. Taking a step back very briefly, that ought to bring some hope and encouragement here tonight. Perhaps there are some of you truly from the heart wanting to honor the Lord, yet beset by sin, struggling in temptation. Draw hope from this tonight. If you're in Christ, there is a day coming, there won't be that struggle no more. There won't be any more temptation. To think even of this final victory, let that bring strength for present victory. To keep striving until you hear the whistle blow. John hears this, John sees this, and then this angelic figure commands him, verse 9, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's as if this celebration's beginning in heaven and it's going to go and be on display on earth, on display as Christ returns, likely through the whole, we're going to see in the next chapter, 1,000-year reign. And then even culminating into the final eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Put your finger here. Can you turn back with me to Isaiah 25? As you turn, that's keeping you active, that's keeping you alert, that's good. Is what John is writing and recording new? Maybe some aspects and yet other parts. They've been prophesied before. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. Does it sound familiar? The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, Even the veil which is stretched over all nations, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. It's as if Isaiah, in a veiled way, prophesying this great event in the future where there will be this great celebration, this great feast. Just as God has acted in judgment, yet here's this feast, God then even acting, where he will begin to wipe away every tear from the eye. Have you heard that phrase before? It's going to appear soon in Revelation. John recording what's already been recorded, just with maybe now a bit more clarity. Well, you could try to put yourself in John's shoes if you, with all that you've seen so far in Revelation, and then to hear this great hallelujah chorus. What would your response be? 
even the response in the presence of such an incredible servant of God, whomever this angelic figure is. Well, we come to verse 10, and John tells us his response. It says, he fell at his feet to worship him. Him, that is, this angelic figure. The angelic figure quickly responds back to John, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours, a fellow slave of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We might read that and think, what is John doing? How, How is he getting confused? Maybe it's the response you and I might have. An experience maybe we've experienced more than we might want to admit. In the presence of a servant of the Lord, someone whom we hold in high regard. If you've ever been to a conference, you hope to meet the speaker. And you line up and you hope to get a picture with this pastor whom you listen to. Maybe you can get your favorite Christian speaker to sign your book, maybe even sign your own Bible, maybe finally to get the opportunity to say something to them. Overwhelmed, excited, anxious. Maybe John, as he's just seen all of that, has that same response, and yet he goes a bit too far as he begins to worship this angelic figure. Certainly, there's a place for you and I to express gratitude and encouragement. Point being, maybe in a measure we understand what John is doing here. Again, giving John the benefit of the doubt. This isn't just youthful teenager John. This is John who is in his 90s, who's walked with the Lord for a long time, and yet still would even come to act in such a way. Good reminder for us, even the best Christians are just that. Christians, not Christ himself. So he's rebuked and he's reminded what it ultimately is all about. Two words, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Hard to unravel exactly what that final phrase means. Many commentators wrestle with it, perhaps as MacArthur put it, the central theme of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's whom it is we are to worship. And as that command is given, as John continues to hear even in the antiphonal praise, all this hallelujah chorus. Now we're ready, Lord willing, next week for the return of the King. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us the Bible, including especially this last book, Revelation. Lord, we admit there are times in this book where we are so challenged and so perplexed trying to make sense of this vision that John had. We make our best efforts, we make our best attempts to study and to interpret and handle your word accurately. It's still in places the imagery is challenging. But, oh Lord, what is about to occur and what we've even heard tonight, how clear it is, how sure it is. You, the God who's declared the end in the beginning. You, the God who sits on your throne. History unfolding at your command. Clouds arise, tempests blow by order from thy throne. That, Lord, we draw great comfort knowing where this world is heading. And then if we have been saved by this lamb, 
that if we have bowed and humbled ourselves in saving faith, oh, how we long for this king to come back, for this king to be the ruler, for this king to act justly, for this king to do away with sin and evil and death. But Lord, we can only glory in that if this king has first dealt with the sin and evil that is in our own hearts. And God, for any here tonight who could sit and hear this hallelujah of the praise in heaven over your judgment, would they see that they will be part of this judgment if they are not wakened by you to flee from this wrath, to hide themselves in your Son? May you use the study tonight to awaken lost hearts and then to strengthen your sheep. Pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.